Well, good morning. I love this space of just coming together and worshiping. And I got to say, um, I'll talk, I'm going to be talking about through the sermon some today, but my wife and I just got back from a trip to Europe for a, for a month. And it was amazing and wonderful and beautiful, and I'm going to talk some about what I learned there. But I also missed you guys. And it's nice to be back and to see all your faces in this community and this family. So... Um, Thank you for being who you are to me. Um, it is Labor Day, so uh, you know there might be some of you that are out camping or something. If you are, hopefully you're tuning in online because I've done that while camping. So, um, but if not, uh, you know people can stream in and, and join later. Um, we would love to get to know you, so fill out a connect card online. Go to hillspringtc.org, or if you're a techie person, you can scan the little QR code in front of you. But we'd love to get to know you, particularly if you're new. And you're around because as much as this church has meant to me over the last three years, we'd love it to mean that for you guys too. Um, with that, so we started a sermon series while I was gone called His Story, and I binge watched it this week and got all caught up. Um, it's a great back to back series. Um, and basically, the whole point of it was that God has this story that he wove, starting with, well, all the way back to Adam and Eve, but we started with Abraham, and all the way up through uh, Simon of Cyrene and Jesus Barabbas, and about how God called his people and worked through his people to tell God's story to the world, to bring this message, this narrative, his heart to our world through us, and that really... God's story, we are a bit peace in, but it's not about us. That his story is much bigger. But here's the cool part, and this is, I'll get into this in a sec, but this is one of the things that I saw so starkly in Europe. God's story definitely did not stop with Jesus Barabbas and Simon of Cyrene. I mean, we know from Simon of Cyrene that he became a follower of Jesus, and we see a legacy of his kids and his wife, you know, being even talked about by Paul. But, but that story exploded, and it's pretty fascinating, and I wish we had time to get into it. Maybe we should do it sometime as a class or something. But there's this crazy little ragtag group of people who were followers of Jesus, at the end of when Jesus is resurrected, the kind of the beginning of Acts. And, and somehow this group of people that, that have given their lives to Jesus and start following him, God starts working through. And, and he starts expanding this group of people. And at first, you know, they're, they're all Jewish, but they're not really Jewish anymore. They're kind of something different. They're sort of this weird sect. And, and the world doesn't really know what to do with them. And they kind of start getting sideways with Rome and some of the ruling Jewish leaders. And, and there's just sort of these weird folks that, I mean, they're ardent pacifists. And they, they, they you know, really start caring for the poor and women and children. Like, they matter to these folks. And they, they're very generous, and they come together, and they support each other, and they give what they have, and they, they start doing acts of charity. And I see this heart of God starting to play out in these people, and they're doing it in weird ways. I mean, there's even rumors that these folks gather in secret love feasts and are, like, 
eating flesh and drinking blood. These are wonky folks. But yet they're so nice and good. And it's pretty crazy because within a relatively short period of time, this group of people is kind of viral agents popping up everywhere. And I know that's a loaded term, given COVID. But what happens is a virus is a virus comes into an existing host and changes its DNA. The way it functions, what it does, and sometimes that's bad, right? That's COVID, blah, and everybody starts hacking and coughing and blowing snot everywhere. But sometimes it's good. Hopefully we're more the good kind than the... But these Christians start popping up in society and they start changing it. They start making people aware, oh, there are poor people. Oh, just because that person isn't rich and authoritative, maybe they still have value. And and they're persecuted and they're kind of hated, but they're also sort of admired. And it's kind of this weird thing. And then for about the first 400 years, they're just kind of this network of, of weird people. In fact, they don't even have an identity when they first start going. In fact, Acts 11 tells us where, where we got the term Christian, right? So Paul and Barnabas had been meeting with the Christians, and it says that they had been meeting with them for a whole year. They taught them large numbers, and then the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We didn't even call ourselves Christians. We were mockingly called Christians by the world around us. See, this wasn't an institution, This wasn't this intentional organization of people coming together and figuring out how to build things. This was simply the spirit of God at work through the hearts of people. And we got mocked. We're little Christs, yay. But that became our identity. So like I said, my wife and I just got back from Europe. And I gotta tell you, the legacy that this little ragtag, persecuted, weirdo, blood-drinking group of people who got mockingly called Christians have left blew me away. I mean, if you happen to be here in the sanctuary, look around, right? This is impressive. I mean, we got a, like, four-tier waterfall. This is cool. We got nothing on Europe. Here's a fun picture of my wife and I standing on a Oh, kind of a bluff. You can see us down there. I took my drone with me, because you know why not. (laughs) And this was actually in Budapest, which is the coolest city, by the way. But in Budapest, you can see, and we'll go to the next picture, there are these churches that just dot the skyline everywhere you look. And I don't know what I thought Budapest was going to be. I kind of ended up there by accident. The whole trip was not planned. We just had like a rail pass. And we're like, oh, where do you want to go today? Let's try Hungary. Um, So I had no idea what I was looking for. But there are these huge cathedrals everywhere. And we kind of followed that mantra of going wherever we felt like. We ended up in 11 countries over the 28 days that we were in Europe. And we saw the most amazing cathedrals. Check out this one from Prague, where this church dominates the skyline. 
course, next one in Munich. It was really fun to go do what it was like, basically a county fair in the shadow of a giant church. Ah, next one. And for those of you who sit in the back, you should have sat closer to the front. But the artistry. Our next one. This was in Vienna. Where they light it up and it just dominates the whole skyline. One of my favorite churches that we visited, though, was outside of Krakow, Poland. And they have a salt mine that's not functioning anymore, but it used to. And the miners wanted a church, so they dug this out of the rock. They wanted to be able to worship God underground. And so this whole cathedral is carved into the salt. Which, by the way, if you go up and lick the walls, they're salty. I, I know that from personal experience. <laughs> you gotta check these things out, right? But here's the deal. I mean, Christianity has its, has its fingerprints everywhere. And of course, some of it's kind of weird. We went to this little cathedral in Bruges. This is a, uh, the Church of the Holy Blood. And inside this ornate little gold thing is a piece of fabric brought back in the Second Crusade from Israel that supposedly has the blood of Jesus on it. You can't see it except once a year, and they do a big parade through the streets. And I mean, they like carry it and have banners and flags and everybody in and they venerate this blood of course there's also this next picture that's a hand an arm from about 500 years ago apparently some thief stuck into the church and tried to steal something from the altar and the statue of Mary up there came alive and grabbed his hand and the only way they could set him free was to cut his arm off and hang it on the wall but I don't know Still there. Looks kind of like beef jerky. Um, it was bones. Yeah, don't, it's not edible. Anyway, um, so there are these weird things, but the Christianity is everywhere. Look at this skyline picture. All those towers you see are major, major churches. It's incredible. And I found myself going from city to city and seeing these churches and these things that are built and just pondering on the amazing way that God has told his story through the last 2,000 years. And it's not just big buildings that are impressive. I mean, literally some of the most amazing, beautiful works of art have come out of Christianity where God's spirit mixes with people and inspires them and gives them this sense of like awe and beauty and wonder and wanting to share it. And you end up with you know, things like this place in, inside of a church in Vienna. If we can go to that one. Where there's huge pillars and beautiful decorations. Or this one inside of a church in Poland. can't even see the guy preaching up front. See him down low by the altar? 
Well, this next one. By Michelangelo. This next one. This ceiling. Painted artwork. This last one. They spent 700 years building that church and rebuilding it when it burned down twice. And it's 283 steps to the top of that tower I counted. But it is amazing. And not just this great art, right? What is the legacy of Christianity for our world? If you Google that, it's fascinating. Do it. I recommend it. The list is endless. But as people follow God, as they surrender their life to him, as they let his nature intermix with them and they mix with the world, I mean, Christianity has contributed amazing things. I mean, we've contributed, like I talked about originally, right? Recognizing and caring for the poor. I mean, we notice the low, lowliest of people. We're almost single-handedly in the West responsible for collecting and maintaining all the scholarly works and the ancient manuscripts of our world through monasteries. We started universities, hospitals, um, insane asylum reform, labor laws. If you are enjoying Labor Day, you can thank Christians for that. In 1847, they... Uh, I should remember the guy's name. Uh, I wrote it down, but I'm not remembering. Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Stationery, became Tory in, in England, and he started talking about the importance of, of setting aside rest and caring for people, particularly children. So he passed a law, it took him about 30 years, where children were only allowed to work 10 hours a day during the week and only eight on Saturdays. Prior to that, it was as much as you could make them work. But Labor Day reform, hospitals, all these were things that Christians went, as, as, the, as God's agents, as having God's heart, we want to impact and change our world. We want to make a difference. We want to bring this Jesus into our world. In fact, it's pretty interesting that the well-known atheist, Jürgen Habermas, stated, the individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. This is an atheist looking at our society and saying, man, look at what Christianity has contributed and things only have sped up in the last couple hundred years. I mean, we've abolished institutionalized slavery, led primarily by Christians, almost exclusively. Reformed hospitals, pushed for education for the poor. I, I don't know if you know, but the whole purpose of Sunday school was to teach impoverished children how to read that were otherwise completely irrelevant. I mean, we believed, hey, it doesn't matter if you're from a poor family and you're working 12 hours a day. We want to teach you how to read because you matter to God. So we started Sunday schools. We instituted prison reform. Prisoners actually had rights. Now, this picture is that church in Vienna. Well, a, a church in Vienna. 
And churches were also a place where they would bury in these crypts underground all the people who died. This church had about 50,000 people buried underneath it in these giant crypts. And this was, oh, I don't know, about the 16th century. The stench was so bad that it snuck up through the ground and for 60 years they couldn't use the, the main pavilion around the church. They, you know, plagues and stuff, and the Christians cared for them and then buried them. So you want to talk about needing prison reform? The solution to this was they took their prisoners and put them down in the crypt and make them scrape the bones free of all the stuff and haul it away and throw it out so that the place would stop stinking. It was a bad deal to be a prisoner. (laughs) And Christians went, you know what, hold on. Everybody is deserving of God's recognition. Even those that our society hates. So we pushed for prison, prison reform. We founded democracy. It gave people the right to vote. We stopped public executions, which boy, we certainly saw plenty of places where they used to do that. We founded the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, almost all the major universities. Even today, over a quarter of all healthcare in the world is done by Christians. We have this incredible legacy of telling God's story to our world. You know, it's kind of funny though. I, when people ask me what I do now, and I tell them I'm a pastor, I usually get kind of a weird look. Like how did we go from this legacy this story of God to, well, kind of that awkward, like, oh, you're one of those. In fact, I saw this little video clip. We're going to play it. It's about a minute and a half long. Of this pastor sort of in that situation. I've learned a lot from him. So let's go ahead and play that. It's always very difficult to know what to say. Because if I say to you that I'm a reverend, which I am, that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what I might be. So I like to be a little bit creative in telling people what I do. I sat next to this lady on an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport. And I said, hello. And she said, oh, hello. And I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to Singapore. Then she said to me, where are you going? going? I said, I'm going to Australia. I said, what do you do? So she told me. Then she said, what do you do? And I said, well, (laughs) I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. (laughs) She said, 
have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death <laughs> and we deal in the area of behavioural alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! <laughs> and it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? <laughs> I said, it's called the church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Y'all can use that. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? And yet somehow, over history, Christianity's gotten this weird rap. I mean, really quick to focus on all the horrible things or the, the things that went bad or went wrong. The ways where maybe God's story wasn't told through the people that said they were telling his story. But I gotta tell you, it's a bit part. It drives me crazy listening to people talk about how bad our world is right now. Go back 60 years. Go back 100 years. Go back 300 years to your prisoner in Vienna. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing how God's story has unfolded in humanity and how Christians led by him and inspired by him have changed our world and noticed people, made them matter. And somehow we've lost some of that story. And I would argue the primary reason for that is because we have forgot our roots. You see, I would say the times when Christianity went the worst, when it went off the rails, when it lost its influence, is when it got excited about the fact that it was Christianity and forgot about the fact that they were Jesus' people. I mean, Christianity has built huge churches and ran crusades and institutionalized some slavery at different points, depending on the parts of it. I mean, the organization, the institution has done horrible things. But there are always the people who are Christians, followers of Jesus, who said, I just want to look like Jesus in the world. That change things, move things forward, force Christianity as an institution to reform, change the message. And this is my heart for us. How do we be followers of Jesus and not just Christians? Sat next to a guy on one of the train rides who was a special forces operative in Germany. And we got talking. And we had, it was an overnight train, and we had like eight hours sitting in this one little cubicle together. Poor guy. But we started talking about you know, what he does and why he does it and what motivates him and his heart. And I asked him at some point in time, well, are you a Christian? And he said, well, I suppose. 
And I said, well, what do you mean by suppose? He said, well, my family's Christian, and, you know, we've been raised Christian. And I was like, well, you are aware that God doesn't have grandchildren. And he kind of looked at me weird, and it didn't translate real well, so it took a lot of explaining. But God doesn't have grandchildren. God doesn't have an institution that just carries us through regardless of our personal commitment or connection to him. God has children. God has people who love him, follow him, seek after him, seek to bring his heart into the world. Or you have an institution. And one of the things that most breaks my heart about all the political stuff and all of that, is how he started to push Christianity back into an institution in our country. Where we claw and we fight for political power. Or we talk about our rights and how we're persecuted and how uh, you know, the world hates us and complain about that. How we have started to worry about our churches and our tax structures or our tax breaks or our this, that, and the other thing. And here's the deal. It's ruining the work of Jesus in our world. I don't know how many of you have non-Christian friends, but go ask them about their opinion of Christians. It's not good. I think a lot of times it's because We've stopped trying to look like Jesus and we've worried about our institution. We get lost when that happens. You see, as Brian quoted in the first sermon of this series, he quoted a guy named Leslie Newbigin who said the greatest heresy in Christianity comes from taking the first half of God's call to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great. But neglecting the second half, through you others will be blessed. See, our call as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is not to look out for ourselves not to build pretty buildings and make our name great and get wealthy and rich. Our call is to bless others. And it's not about us. Paul said it pretty succinctly in Galatians 2.20, which is one of my life verses. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, it's not about the institutions and the structures and the law and the rules. It's about giving our lives to Jesus and letting him integrate his nature into us so that he can tell our story in the world. See, God's not done telling his story yet. And we are the ones he wants to tell it through. 
As we come to the last part of the service here, it's the first Sunday of the month, so we get to do communion. Hopefully you grabbed one of these little guys because, you know, Jesus comes prepackaged and sterile in times of COVID. If you need one, raise your hand. We got people who will throw them at you. Got a couple up here. See, we are those crazy, weird, wonky people who notice the downtrodden and the lowly and eat flesh and drink blood. But I really like that analogy. I've got a couple more up here, too. I really like that analogy because, see, here's the deal. What does food do? You eat food. You bring it into your body. Your body absorbs it, uses the energy and the nutrients in it to power and, and move you into the world, to feed you. And see, there's this part of communion where we are literally symbolizing taking Jesus into us and using him to live into our world with his power to actually draw our life and our breath and our nature from God. We eat Jesus so that we can live his story into the world. Which is why as he took the loaf, gave thanks and blessed it, He broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do you know even God's story, his story was not about Jesus getting what he wanted. He was broken. He said, as often as you eat this, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of all the times when, man, rather than creating something beautiful, you did something ugly. As often as you drink it, remember me. And so as we come to this table now, I encourage you, as you take his bread, And you eat it. How is God wanting to use you to write his story in the world? And you take his blood into you for forgiveness. How does he want to use you to change our world? Join me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your amazing story that you've written. This Acts 29 at the end of scripture, the story that you have carried into our world. And I love seeing all the ways you have worked. And God, I pray that you continue to use each and every one of us as your children, as your followers, to bring your heart, your love into our world to tell your story. We are yours, Jesus. And in your name we pray.